I'm, I'm, I'm doing Colbert after this. So oh, so we're the warm-up. Yeah. You're, you're my warm-up, yeah. I'll Good. try out a few of the gags on you. Good, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. This is the place for this. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. Welcome How are we doing? Back. Oh, thank you. It oh, was, yeah. It was a nice trip. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah. It was a fun little trip. I was basically accompanying my wife, Amanda, mm-hmm. on her work trip, but got to show her my old haunts. Um, and you didn't get arrested. Didn't get arrested. Good. Um, love China. They love me in the country and let me out. So, <laughs> Good news. Yeah. Excited <laughs> to be back here. Yes. And what are we drinking today, Zach? We are drinking Fanta, which may seem mm. like an odd... Uh, choice, but it will make more sense in the context of our interview. Um, Olga, who are we talking to? So this week, we're super excited because we're talking with the Welsh actor Jonathan Price. Now, a lot of our listeners might know him as the High Sparrow from Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. But most recently, he actually starred in The Two Popes, which comes out this Friday on Netflix when you guys will be listening to this episode. Yes, yeah. and Jonathan plays Pope Francis. Which is crazy, because I feel like, and we're going to hopefully ask Jonathan about this, but the memes that came out, yes, when you the, the moment you realize the High Sparrow is actually Pope Francis, <laughs> right? And then he played Pope Francis. Yeah. Um, but to explain a little bit why we're drinking Fanta, yes. uh, it is revealed in the, in the film that one of Pope Benedict's, the other Pope of two Popes, um, one of his favorite drinks was Fanta. So we thought we'd honor Pope Benedict while having Pope Francis, yes. his uh, actor in the room. And I haven't had Fanta in like 20 years, so this is exciting. I know. <laughs> Yummy orange drink. Cheers. Right, cheers. Cheers to the two pips. Long may they reign. Anyway. Um. <laughs> so stick around for that wonderful interview. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. So this week, we have a lot of news coming out of the Vatican. Mm-hmm. First, today is Tuesday, and that's Pope Francis's 83rd birthday. And, and my roommate, Jacob. Happy birthday, Jacob. Uh, yeah. Happy right. birthday. Well, yes. happy birthday to them both. <laughs> um, but also some more serious news coming out of the Vatican. Today, it was announced that Pope Francis is abolishing what is known as the pontifical secret for cases of sexual misconduct involving clerics um and so this is a little confusing so we're going to try to unpack it yeah for you. pontifical so first, secret big. it sounds kind of daunting yeah what or is like it, some Zach? fraternity <laughs> language or something um basically it's a rule that ensures that in cases of sexual abuse um and other grave crimes they're handled with uh, strict confidentiality as they make their way through the vatican's judicial system right and vatican experts say that this was actually designed to protect the dignity of everyone involved including the victim the accused their families and their communities but what this often looked like is, you know, people would be going th- have their cases going through the Vatican and they felt like they were stifled and were not be able- maybe weren't able to talk to civil authorities or just like make their cases known in the public. Yeah, almost functioning like a weird NDA, mm-hmm, right? Right. And so this came under criticism back in February when the Vatican, you guys will remember, um, convened its big sex abuse summit. Critics thought that this rule was being used to prevent officials from cooperating with civil authorities in these cases. Right. And under the the new rule, the person who files the report, the person who alleges um, to have been harmed, and the witnesses are not bound by any obligation of silence with regards to the investigation. Right. And while Vatican officials are still obligated to maintain confidentiality in a lot of these cases, the new change shall not prevent the fulfillment of the obligations laid down in all places by civil laws, including any reporting obligations and the execution of enforceable requests of civil judicial authorities. Right. So so a little clarification. This is not 
have anything to do with the seal of confession, right? That is absolute. So anything shared in confession is still stays there, basically. Right. Um, and the decision was welcomed by um, advocates uh, for victims of sexual abuse, victims themselves, including Marie Collins, who had been very critical of the Vatican's approach to sexual abuse. She was initially on Pope Francis's commission for dealing with this and quit because she felt like progress was not being made fast enough. Yeah. So people have been very critical about how this has happened, are heralding this as a really positive step. And it might seem like a small thing, but it is, you know, we're chipping away different, different things to bring about real reform in the church in this area. What's our next story, Olga? So last week, the Wall Street Journal published an article that has been getting a lot of attention, and the title is Vatican Uses Donations for the Poor to Plug Its Budget Deficit. And the article focused on Peter's Pence, which is an organization that we've talked about in the past. Right. So this is the collection that um, is collected around the world in parishes, and it's it's marketed um, and is supposed to be kind of you give money so that the Pope can give it to charitable organizations or relief efforts, things like that. Or whatever the Pope decides. Right. Right. And so what that effectively means, is, according to Wall Street Journal, is that only 10 percent of the 55 million dollars that's collected annually goes to charitable works. And the majority ends up covering the Vatican's budget deficit. Right. And so people who you know, study Vatican finances um, aren't exactly seven, all seven of them. (laughs) They're not surprised by this. It was not a big secret that um, the funds that go to Peter's Pence cover the deficit. It's been happening since the 1980s. Um, And the Vatican website is kind of it gives a broad umbrella to what this money can go to. It says that, you know, it does go towards humanitarian needs, but it also, quote, contributes to the support of the Apostolic See and the activities of the Holy See, which could mean anything. Right. And it's kind of hard to fact check this Wall Street Journal story because the Vatican isn't exactly the most transparent when it comes to its finances, but it doesn't look good. We've covered the Vatican's finances in before. Back in October, we talked about how officials who worked in some of their offices were being investigated for irregular financial operations. So it never looks good when we see these stories come out. No. And, you know, on the one hand, the Vatican is sort of this nation sort of corporate body that has operating costs and you know catholics should be okay with paying those costs but on the other hand this feels like maybe only like 10 percent of this fund going to charity feels like not enough and like it's been mismarketed yeah i mean certainly the way we talked about it led us to believe that this was going towards charitable works Right. And our our colleague and the host of Inside the Vatican, Colleen Dully, um, has a really helpful explainer that kind of breaks this all down. Um, So we will put that in the show notes. And I would recommend looking into that if you're curious about Peter's Pence. What's our next story, Zach? Yeah. So on the topic of transparency or lack thereof at the Vatican, uh, one issue that's sort of debated again and again, uh, especially during Francis's papacy, is that of marriage and annulment. Right. And Gwen Stefani is someone who might be curious about how you get an annulment. She recently made it known that she is ready to marry her boyfriend, Blake Shelton, but is unable to because she would like to get married in the church, but she has already been divorced once and has not procured an annulment. I thought the story was bananas. (laughs) B-A-N. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, so aside aside from your joke, it's really interesting to hear a celebrity talk about this so publicly, especially Ashley brought this story. And it's in Cosmo, not the place where I would expect to to hear a Catholic talk about the annulment process. But according to Crux, this is actually something that happens a lot in the United States. The church issues only about 60,000 annulments each year around the world, around the world. But the majority of them happen in the United States. Yeah. So we make up six percent of the world's Catholics and we get 55 to 70 percent of of the annulments that are issued by the Vatican. 
Yeah, so this is just one high-profile case, but it's definitely something that is really common for Catholics in the United States. You know, why that is, I guess, is a topic for another discussion. What's our next story, Olga? So the Pew Research Center just released a new study that analyzed thousands of sermons that are available online, either via live stream or some other means, to gain some data on various Christian denominations and preaching. Yeah, this was fascinating. (laughs) First of all, this research is just like a lot easier because more churches are posting these things online, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting in itself. But the most interesting finding was that Catholics actually have the shortest sermons, what we call them homilies, By a long shot. (laughs) Yeah. And it was still, I thought, pretty long. At 14 minutes was the median Catholic sermon. Right. So the average overall among Christian denominations was 37 minutes. The highest overall was in historically black Protestant churches, which had sermons of 54 minutes. And Catholics came in at 14. Well, I think that they are typically better preachers. So (laughs) at least there's that. But I can't imagine sitting through a 54 minute uh, sermon every Sunday. Yeah. As someone who for a while was going to an evangelical church with right. my fiance. I think our pastor there, his average at about 50 minutes every really? Sunday. And Enoch grew up in, my fiance grew up in these spaces. So to him, he was like, oh, this is kind of short. Like African churches are longer. Um, and I was just like, oh my God. Every time we sat in service, I'd be like, we still have another 30 minutes yeah, left. Yeah, that's brutal. But yeah. they are, he was a very engaging preacher and he was often talking about things that really kept your attention. But still as someone who, as a Catholic, it's still too long. My yeah. other favorite stat out of this is they also pulled out the words that are most distinctive of each religious tradition. And for Catholics, the most distinctive word in their homilies was homily, which just like makes perfect sense because I Very feel like every time I hear a homily, it like starts or ends with a joke about how it's a long homily or a short homily or a funny <laughs> homily or a not very funny homily. Like yeah. they always talk about the homily as a genre within the homily. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's very typical. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I thought, you you know, was listening to this and I was like, okay, I remember a very distinct point in my own faith journey in college when I was showing up to mass and I realized like, oh, th- I'm actually not here for a good homily. Mm-hmm. Like if it's good, that's a nice bonus, but there's like so many other things going on in Catholic liturgy that like are keeping me there. And I'm grateful for that because one could say there's a crisis of good preaching in the Catholic church. <laughs> I wouldn't want a Catholic priest to look at this and be like, oh, man, we better step up our game and double the length of our homilies. No, 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 no. I think think the focus needs to be on quality, not quantity. Smarter, not harder. (laughs) What's our last story, Ashley? Yes, our last story today is another one out of the U.S. church. Bishop James Conley of Lincoln, Nebraska, announced last week that he is taking a medical leave of absence from ministry. He said in a letter to Catholics in his diocese that he has been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and insomnia. So Conley said that he decided to share this information because he hopes that in some small way he can help lift the stigma of mental health issues. Yeah, I was really moved by this story, right? Obviously, your your prayers and your heart goes out to Bishop Conley uh, for dealing with this. But also, you know, I I just thought it was so courageous to see him at the same time taking care of himself, trying to open up about it and be very transparent about it and ending a stigma at the same time. Right, because anxiety and depression affects a lot of people in this country. It's about 20 percent of Americans who who deal with this. And it's really encouraging to see a church leader be so open and vulnerable. And there was a story a couple of weeks ago from the Associated Press um, talking about um, 
the isolation and, um, you know, just overwork that priests are having to deal with as there are less and less priests. So I think it's really important for them to have a church leader that they can, you know, look up to as an example who's, you know, open and honest about this and is taking time to step back and take care of his mental health. Yeah, I think we live in a time right now where bishops and priests kind of are viewed negatively. And, you you know, there are some that deserve those negative views, right? But the, the majority of priests and bishops are doing a lot of really heroic work and overworked work. You know, you think about the diocesan priest who's running around to five different parishes on any given Sunday to say Mass. Um, and bishops are no, you know, these are hard times to be in the Catholic Church, you know, that's something we've talked about. Yeah, in this time of year especially, like, there are a lot of masses and a lot of extra things going on at church. Um, so I imagine priests are kind of stressed and overworked, especially. Um, so I just hope that priests and parishioners um, are looking out for each other this time of year and, and encouraging um, one another to look after their mental health and take a step back if they need to. Joining us in the studio today is Jonathan Price. He is a Welsh actor known for a variety of roles, most recently Pope Francis in The Two Popes. Welcome to Jesuitical. Uh, uh, hello. I was about to say good morning, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's afternoon already. Hello. Yes. Congratulations on the film. We're so excited. It's it's coming out on Netflix. Uh, our first question is, you know, you get the call. They're asking you to play Pope Francis. What's running through your mind? Well, I think normally I would uh, be very um, doubtful whether I wanted to play a pope. Um, you're kind of on a hiding to nothing. You can neither please people or, you know, you'll probably displease more people than you True. please. But it was because it's this particular pope that I was very attracted to doing it. Um, he's the first pope that I've ever really been aware of. Um the first pope I felt who's been speaking to me personally and and millions more like me. I'm not a Catholic. I grew up in North Wales and went to the Welsh Presbyterian Chapel in the town. I went to morning service and Sunday school and um, like many teenagers, walked away from the church at that time. But Pope Francis um, I think I saw him more as a, a political leader, a world leader, rather than a, a leader of a, an organized religion. Um, he was speaking in the way that I wanted our political leaders to speak. Mm. He was talking on issues that affect us all. He was uh, talking and writing about the environment mm -hmm. and about, especially about the inequality of life. And he was talking about the refugee crisis and what we could do to help embracing Catholics and non-Catholics alike. And I found that very attractive in, in a leader. Um, so that admiration was enough to move you into Well, it was, yeah, it was that in the script. Yeah, <laughs> yes. the script is great. And the, yeah. script, um, the script could read like a, a very, you know, it, it's, it's mostly a, a duologue between Benedict mm -hmm. and uh, Bergoglio. And um, uh, it could, you know, it could be a very dry... Uh, it's two old men talking. But it uh, wasn't. <laughs> but it, it turns out not to be because it's in the hands of a wonderful director, Fernando Moraes, right. who um, I ad admired from uh, City of God onwards. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I knew that working with him, it would have a, an energy and a life and a, 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 a kind of a world viewpoint. So, Jonathan, how did you get into the role? You mentioned that you're not Catholic. So mm. how did you get into the role and what did you learn about Pope Francis and the Jesuits in this process? 
Um, to be honest, I didn't learn very much about the Jesuits per se. I learned about him, um, and I learned about his his personal history. It's odd that the the main thing I learned about the Jesuit Church in uh, Buenos Aires was uh, was negative. A particular priest I uh, spoke to who was advising me about protocol and about uh, all things Catholic um, had worked under Cardinal Bergoglio and didn't like him. He found him um, quite unapproachable, quite a stern disciplinarian, as it were, about the church. And of course, he was also part of that faction in uh, in Argentina that that find him divisive and is just, uh, still find him divisive because of his possible collaboration with colonels in the seventies, uh, which is an issue we don't shy away from in the film. We talk about it, and he gets to say what he felt about that situation and how he feels now that he didn't do enough. He could have done more to protect his priests. Um, and he also said another very interesting thing, and, and it coupled with some of the research I'd done on YouTube and found film of him when he was being interviewed by his peers about the possible collaboration. And he did look indeed a very stern man, quite an angry man, and obviously not happy about sitting there being questioned. And he looked angry, looked, he was drumming his fingers on the table with impatience mm. and wanting this to be over. So the opposite of sort of the persona that he's... Well, it's absolutely the opposite. And what the priest said was when he appeared on the, the balcony, when he was declared pope, they didn't recognize him because he was smiling. Wow. And so he, they knew him as the man who never smiled. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's a, it's obviously a very uh, pejorative point of view because there was thousands in uh, Buenos Aires who revered him and the, the, he did work with the poor. He said mass to the poor in, open air, in the open air. He went to the, the shanty towns. Uh, you see that in the film. Yeah, um, so you, you mentioned that you initially saw him as a political figure and then you kind of described learning about his political background. But yeah. I, as someone who watched the film, that's, that's not what I see. I see like a pastor. So how did you, when did you learn about that part of him and how did you kind of bring that to I didn't have to, to learn life. about it. I yeah. didn't, I had to, what I had to do was fulfill the script and to embody him. Mm. Um, I've been asked, you know, about uh, how did you build this character, Sim mm -hmm. similar to what you're asking. Mm. And I say, I didn't, he did, and I follow in his footsteps. I'm very happy to follow in his footsteps because I respect and believe in the things that he says as, as a Christian. When I say I see a political figure, I can't divorce him from uh, the church and from Christianity um, because that governs the way he thinks. It governs the way I think. Um, I, I couldn't, I can't leave behind what I felt as a teen, you know, before I, before I left the church, as it were. No. Um, and I think I try to lead my life in, uh, according to Christian tenets. You know, it's, um, it's part of me. And so... I see him as someone who does a tremendous amount of good politically and for the church. If you could uh, permit me to ask perhaps a silly question about another religious leader you've played who's not a Christian. Yeah. Uh, when you debuted as the High Sparrow on Game of Thrones, yeah. were you aware of the memes that went around that said, when you realize that the High Sparrow looks exactly like Pope Francis? Yeah, well, those, that, the day he was <laughs> declared Pope, the internet was full of the images of both of us. <laughs> And then the High Sparrow, they started to make the connections with the High Sparrow. And I was making connections with not just, not at all, the look of them, 
But when I took the role of uh, High Sparrow, I only read, you're only given the, your, your scripts for that season. Mm -hmm. And that character, he was going into that crazy... He started out very humble. <laughs> well, yeah, he did. And he was going into that society in order to change it, yeah. Yeah. to make changes. And he was doing everything that Pope Francis did when he became Pope. He was washing the people's feet. He was feeding them. He was looking out for the poor and the dispossessed. And um, it was one of the positive things I found about High Spira's character. And then we finished that, and I get the script for season six, and I go, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I'd seen six first, maybe I wouldn't have done the part. But um, what I'm looking forward to is Two Popes too, when the popes go bad. <laughs> <laughs> so how much, how much harder is it to play a living person than a fictional one, especially someone as famous as Pope Francis? Yeah, this it's, is well, someone, you have one billion people that mm -hmm. you can offend or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a strange thing. I, I actually found it um, in many ways easier to play a living person, but it was easier to play him. Mm -hmm. um, I've been accused mostly by my wife of putting too much of myself uh, into characters or making a character too much like me. And I was delighted just to be Pope Francis. And um, because there's so much documented about him that uh, I could draw on, uh, just physically and uh, the way he spoke. And I, I learned Spanish and I learned Italian and a little bit of Latin. Um, so it, it, it was an absolute, it was a joy to do. Was there something about your own spirituality that changed as playing this role? I don't think so. But I did, there was something, this same priest in Buenos Aires, when I was leaving Buenos Aires to uh, come back to Europe and to prep for working in Rome, um, I'd been doing a scene where I was uh, sorting clothes and sorting food to, for the poor people in the favela. And they were the real people. It was a real shelter that I was working in. And um, he came to me to say goodbye, and I was very happy to say goodbye to him. I wanted to thank him. And then he said, uh, before you go, would you mind if I blessed you? And I said, no, it's fine. And uh, I'd never been blessed again since I was a baptized as a baby. And um, it was a combination of all kinds of emotions of, you know, my leaving this place, the work I'd been involved in, the people I'd met. But I found this quite an overwhelming emotional experience. Yeah. And um, I've, uh, it wasn't quite a sense of rapture. Or anything, <laughs> it was, uh, I, 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 I cry easily and I, I get emotional fairly easily um, but this was it was a very and I found myself asking him to bless my family so I have oh, yeah. three children and a wife um, my wife is a lapsed Catholic uh, many of my friends are lapsed Catholics when they've seen this film they've uh, been confused because they know this is an institution they've rejected but why am I crying yeah. At the end of this film, mm -hmm. maybe I should start looking at things again. And there have been people who've uh, seen it and rejected the church, and now they were going to look at it again with new eyes. Um, the film has all sorts of effects on people, and that's, that's why it's such a wonderful film. It speaks to all of us. Um, there's a, a man who came after a Q&A, went up to the writer, and he said, you know you've made a, a a Jewish film, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's two rabbis 
talking about the gospel, mm-hmm. talking about the Talmud and uh, making jokes and, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, congratulations on yeah. the film. It is excellent. Again, our listeners can you can go to Netflix, watch it today. Yeah, and we did have a screening uh, last week for the Vatican, oh. and uh, representatives of the Vatican came, and I think I was more nervous about that audience than anyone else. And uh, as the 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 priests and the the bishop and the cardinal were leaving, I approached them and uh, you know made myself available to them to hear what they had to say. And uh, the priests definitely slowly it came out that they they had enjoyed it. They found it quite amusing to be standing with me, mm-hmm. uh, and you know because they know the pope. <laughs> uh, but one particular cardinal. Um, uh, Cardinal Turkson, who is very close to Benedict mm-hmm. and is also a friend of of uh, uh, Francis, he loved the film. He liked what I did. Um, again, I was almost crying when he was telling me this, but because it did mean a great deal. And he wanted a DVD to take to Francis. Oh wow! Oh, wow. To show him because he was convinced he would like the film. That's wow. amazing. I'm sure he yeah. would. Yeah. yeah. So, Jonathan, we've got one final question for okay. you. We ask all of our guests, if you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, Leonard Cohen. Okay. And for our listeners who might not know who that is? <laughs> then they should go <laughs> on Spotify immediately and, and listen to the canon of that man's work since uh, the early 70s. Um, I don't know. He's a poet and a writer, and uh, he means a great deal to me. But more more recently... You know, we talked about experiences, emotional experiences and spiritual experiences. I've been to see David Byrne's show, American Utopia, on Broadway. I went to see it twice. Um, It is life-affirming. There is an air of spirituality about it. And it is about um, how we relate to each other as human beings and how we can... You come out of it feeling a better person, a better human being. Um, I wouldn't exactly canonize either of them, but uh, they are incidents in my life where you feel this uh, this shared spirituality among an audience of a thousand and more in Leonard Cohen's uh, time, uh, five or six, I saw them with five or six thousand other people mm. who all leave the theater six feet taller. Yeah, Saint Leonard Cohen. I think that's the first for him. So. Yeah, it would be a good first, <laughs> yeah. first Jewish saint. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. Well, th- again, the film is The Two Popes. You can watch it on Netflix. Thank you so much for joining us. Great, thank, yeah, you. thank you so thank you, much. Jonathan. Thank you. Now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we have two new patrons that we want to thank, Bernadette and Brianna. Thank you so much for supporting our work here at Jesuitical. We couldn't do it without you. And if anyone else would like to support us through Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash americamedia. And now we have some bigger news. Yeah, this is, uh, this is tough. <sighs> yeah, this is rough. I have... 
I thought about how this announcement would come off and I just got to rip the bandaid off. I will be leaving Jesuitical and America Media at the end of December. Um, but it's been wonderful to be a part of the faith community that we've shared here with my co-host, my producer and you guys who I don't often get to see you, um, but you guys have become a part of my life. So thank you for being a part of this. I hate it. I know. Yeah. We are. We are. So, yeah. We're, yeah. We're going to get into this more. Yeah. Um, you, this is not the last you'll hear mm-hmm. of Olga. Right. Mm-hmm. So next week's episode is going to yeah. be we are exit interviewing Olga about her time on Jesuitical and all the work that she's done at America. And you'll hear her on a couple different interviews in the new season. But um, wanted to share that with you guys because it's we've been sitting with it and crying over it for a couple weeks now. Yeah, we have. Um, but this, I think, relates to your your consolation and desolation this week, right? Yeah, I have a, a bit of a combo one this week. Um, are, are we just going to go right into it? I guess it? we'll go okay, right into it. it. Um, so the consolation, I, as you guys mentioned, I this was a decision that I made before Thanksgiving, but I had been kind of thinking about it and sitting with it and talking it over with my fiance. And I announced it uh, here at America right before Thanksgiving. And I know that it's the right decision. I'm going to be working on my book and I really need the time for that. But I can't help but listen. The desolation has been that lately I've been listening to that evil spirit in my mind that's like, why would you leave a job where you are already established and you have people who love you, people who are part of your faith community, people who push you to work harder? And I just keep thinking, am I going to stop being Catholic when I leave here? Am I not going to work as hard? And Father Sundrup was like, you know who's telling you that? I'm like, I know it's the evil spirit. (laughs) 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 Um, And I know that it's the evil spirit. We've been doing this long enough to recognize what it is, but I can't, especially this week, I think um, it's been a mix of being really sad and vulnerable has has forced me to kind of give into those feelings a little bit more. Um, And I just keep thinking like, what am I going to do without you guys, without like the space that we've created here? And what is my faith going to look like? Okay, first of all, you're not moving from New York, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll we'll still, still be in the be Bronx. Here. I'll still be in the Bronx. Do I need a visa to go there? How's that? Um, that like I think they just changed the laws and you don't. Okay. So you're going to have so much time to come down to Brooklyn now? So. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Oh, man. Well, th- well uh, thank you. I, we'll do all the yeah. crying yeah, we'll, goodbyes We'll do all the later, crying but, stuff later. Uh, all right. Ashley, what's your consolation? Um, how do you know I have a consolation? Good guess. <laughs> I do have a consolation. Um, and it's funny. It, it actually relates to the homily. <laughs> was it? How long was it? How long was the homily? You were there. I think it was like 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we had a visiting Jesuit at our normal um, oratorian parish this past week. And I was really struck by the homily. Um, so the readings this week, uh, the gospel was the story of John the Baptist. He's in prison and he's asking his followers, like, is Jesus the real deal? Um, and our, our priest kind of talked about how when when John the Baptist was in the womb, Jesus just got like close to him and he didn't even have to see him. He didn't even have to be conscious and he knew it was Jesus. And then as John the Baptist gets older, like he doubt starts creeping in and he has to rely on the people around him to like remind him that that Jesus is is the one um, that, you know, he thought was coming. Um, And it was just a good reminder for me that it's okay to rely on community for your faith. Like, and it's kind of like a built-in, you could consider it a flaw, but maybe it's a good thing that like, as you get older, you don't just have that childlike faith that like, you can just believe anything. You have to, you have to have other witnesses um, reminding you that Jesus is God and that he loves you. Um, And so it was helpful for me to remind myself that like, maybe doubt, I shouldn't see it 
as a weakness, but like as an invitation to rely on people around me, um, which made me think of you guys, because I often think about like where my faith life would be if I didn't have you two and everyone else at America who's constantly, you know, providing me me with an example of how God works in the world. So it was just like a moment of gratitude and it came through homily. Wow. Way to go, homilies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you have, Zach? I have uh, complicated consolation is what I'm calling Mm -hmm. it, I think. Um, Right now is like there's a lot of things in flux and change in life and a lot of things are in transition and not all these are bad things and change isn't necessarily bad. Like this marriage and married life, that is a great change. But um, my grandma's dying right now, so that feels sort of unstable. Um, professionally, things are in flux, like Olga, you're leaving, and there's a couple other things in transition right now. And I I know that I'm invited in periods like this to just trust God and just say, you know, you have a plan for this and draw near to me. And I don't necessarily feel that. And so that might be considered a desolation, but also there's been a ton of consolation in my life the past like six months. And Ignatius talks about sort of saving up, like relying on past consolations to carry you through um, moments that would be desolation. And so I'm still sort of like coasting on like the gas I have in the tank, right? Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not out of gas yet. I'm still, I'm still riding. And so I uh, still waiting for that feeling to come back, a feeling of trust in this moment of transition. But that's why I'm calling it a complicated consolation mm. this week. So Sometimes you just got to you, you gotta rely on the good times, as they say. That's cheesy and not really accurate. But, but we have had many this year on the show with each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. It's been a wonderful journey. We have, and we'll, we'll reflect on it more next week. We will. We will. So no more crying. No more crying. <laughs> All Take right. us out of here, Ashley. Will do. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Izzy Senecal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Keep Calm, Carry On 15. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Skura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>